was wanting to bring up a consideration that's been bugging me for a couple of weeks. So is that okay? Yes. I don't have an answer about it, so maybe we'll come up with some answers. But I was thinking about how the world is a lot more alive than we normally regard it, I think. I think that there's a lot more subtle and lively and energetic um, things happening around all the time that we largely block ourselves from experiencing. And if you've read any Carlos Castaneda stuff that Don Juan Matus is always indicating those things as a way of trying to help wake up Carlos Castaneda some more, to pay attention in different ways. But in our own uh, language or our own um, work with that stuff, it's still, that is still something I think that's necessary for us to move into is a, a more complete and interactive relationship with life that's, that where in such, in some way where we become more involved or more lively in relationship to life without cutting it or atten without attenuating the experience of the volatility and liveliness that's around us. And I think that the, one of the ways that we deaden the, our experience of life has to do with our naming of things and our objectifying things, making things into objects, distinct objects that we name. And it, not just that, but when we, when we name an object or when we pick out an object that's distinct, we, we assume it's fixed and rigid and solid in that naming process. So if, if we pick up the bottle, we go, oh yeah, it's a, it's a bottle, the plastic bottle, because we know what it is, we already know what it is. And that's not, what that's doing is blocking off 99% of what's happening there in that thing that we just call them uh, a bottle, and it's not allowing the bottle to be alive. It's not allowing it to be changing. So that's the thing, is that we're not allowing the things to be changing. We're, we're um, cr crystallizing them in our experience into a, a thing or an object that's dead and lifeless and still, so that uh, and so that it establishes a relationship between us and it so that so that our what I say you know, box so that our box doesn't have to do anything different so it's a defense mechanism to keep the box the same we go around killing the entire domain of life around us from everything from what we think of as inanimate objects to, through like this carpet, which is maybe wool, so it's half, you know, half animate, whatever, to something that's fully animated, you know, birds, trees, people, animals, all those things. That's, we objectify all that and take the life out of it through a, a really 
pervasive, unquestioned activity, an act of creation that we're doing. We're actively creating the world as dead so that the liveliness doesn't affect us so that our box can stay the same. So that's one sort of viewpoint is the is that methodology of ego or the box that stultifies and crystallizes and mortifies the world to make it dead. So the other the other side of it is some languaging that comes out of I guess a Gurdjieffian background and I don't know if Red Hawk has spoken with you about this already but the other the other way of the other part of the consideration is that the manifested world which is everything with atoms in it you know everything that's physical and exists that the manifested world can be called creation the whole thing is creation all the planets all the stars everything on all the planets and in between all the galaxies and all the molecules and all the light and energy and fields and all of that stuff <coughs> is creation so that it's a created world so the whole thing has been manifested so there's this there's a world that's unmanifested and this is this which we don't experience and this is the manifested world which we live in and relate to the physical world and the idea that consideration from there is that is that creation is dead and that our work is to bring creation to life and that the, the way that happens is through placing our attention on aspects of creation as a way of bringing them to life and so I've been trying to figure this out or think about it and what I was thinking was that um, you know if there if creation is dead the, the way that it's dead is that it doesn't know it's alive or something like that, that our human consciousness has the possibility of being aware of ourselves as being created or being aware of God or being aware of our attention or being aware of ourselves. So self-awareness. So there's a there is a way that if if we take it for granted that creation is dead and that part of our work is to make a you know, make a chamber and call forth a level of attention that transforms the energy of the space into something that's more refined to feed something higher, which is, I think Red Hawk was talking with you guys about before, then that's a way of making the creation come to life <coughs> because of the aliveness of, it, of creation paying attention to itself. And whereas, whereas this bottle again, 
poor bottle. This bottle again is dead because because it hasn't been regarded or it isn't it isn't paid attention to in a certain way. So if I establish a different kind of relationship to this bottle where it's a, where I've appreciated, where I act, I'm actively involved in appreciating or paying attention to or caring for or loving or nurturing the bottle, I, I have infinite respect for the bottle, um, then there's a way that it comes back to life again, that it's involved in a consciousness, um, a consciousness activity. It's involved, it's in a relationship with consciousness, so that because it's involved with that, it comes to life differently. Well, there's a... So then I'm going back to the box again. In the, the, the context of boxes, one of the contexts is a defended box. So a defended box is one that's protected and not allowed to expand or be in relationship with something that it can't control or dominate or manipulate or keep the same. So that's a defended box. And an expanded box is involved in incorporating more and more uh, awareness, including more, allowing more to come in. So it, it, it gets bigger and what, what's getting bigger is consciousness. The consciousness of the box is getting bigger or the awareness, it includes more. So that's actually a learning process. So there's a box that's defended and a box that's learning. And we're, in, we're involved in, the process that we're involved in is a learning process where boxes are expanding because we're, we're involved in a learning process. I guess that's about as far as I got. So I wanted to just sort of throw it out and see what other people are thinking about all that stuff. Well, to me, I could relate very readily to the training that we've had in the event uh, by training our attentions, training ourselves to be a, a listening space for people. It's be, it, I understand and I experienced it earlier in conversation with my daughter how if I would just be present and listen, her conversation became increasingly more enlivened and increasingly more trusting and increasingly more informative to herself and to myself, just in, in my having been there on the phone, giving her my attention. And she asked me, please, Mother, I'd like you to withhold any comments or any, you know, any whatever. And I said, no problem. And, you know, we had an agreement that I was going to be listening for her, and we both understood the agreement, so we had an aim in that, and it really was productive. She got to fully express, and it was a very enlivened experience between both of us. You know, and, and to me, that's bringing conversation alive, the training that we've had, and really just listening is an enlivening experience. First thing that I thought of was the Matrix, with the spoon scene, and he, nothing happened to the spoon at first because he saw all the laws and principles of the spoon that it was solid, and, and he was trying to bend the spoon, and the kid said, uh, "Think of it as not a spoon or." Don't try to bend the spoon. For that is impossible. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not a spoon. Basically. There is no spoon. Right, there is no spoon. And so we just totally changed the laws and it bent. And that's what I was thinking of when you were speaking. That other things are possible by not, by not holding just to the box of the rules. The naming and the, the naming and labeling. That's what did land for me. It's like I'm sitting here, it's reverb it's in my mind, like what the cost is of that box of limiting creation. So when you said it it was a new idea, so I got caught in the idea of it. So now I'm kind of looking at well what's the cost of that? Like where how is creation limited? And how does that function daily? So I think it'd be worth looking at that for this conversation, like what are the costs for limiting creation? So can you start that conversation? Well, when you already know what something is, then every other thing that it could be that can't exist anymore. So it's killing all, it's killing possibilities for relationship because we already know how a person is or how a, a sentence is that they said or an attitude that they have or an act that they do or like that. If we name it and go, oh, that again, or they're being this way or they're being that way, or we have a, we assess it and we have a story about it or we criticize it or we judge it, then we're not allowing it to be, well, then we've limited it. We've killed off all the other things that it is. And if instead we go in and don't know what it is, we still can be in relationship with it. We still can be aware of it. We still can work with it. We can, we can, things can happen, but we're, we're not naming what it is. So the things that can happen are more completed. There's more possibility. So when we go in and naming something, calling it by name and define, uh, de- um, delimiting the future of it to, for it to be consistent with its past, something like that, then we've killed it. We've, we've narrowed it down into a one, that's it, that's what it is. And then we don't have to do anything else with it. So there will, our relationship to it has then been killed or, or deadened. It's been, we've, we've eliminated the flux that's actually happening, the liveliness and, the, and the, the change that's actually happening right there. There's nothing that's not changing. There's nothing that's not changing. And by the action of naming a thing, we're killing the changeness quality. We're, we're eliminating that from our relationship with the thing. And, and that what I'm suggesting is that from that viewpoint, everything is so lively and so radiant and um, vibracious and interactive and um, evolutionary, it's evolving, that um, we, we, we disestablish that from our experience and our relationship with that thing by, by doing the naming thing on it. So that's the cost. Of it, so for most of us, I mean, what we think is go well. That's great, you know. I don't have to worry about the lamp becoming anything other than a lamp because I've named it. It makes my world easier. It gives me power, gives me uh, safety, gives me um, stability, and like that. And uh, so for psychology, you know, for the box, it's a fantastic deal. Like all I have to do is name something, and I own it got it. So for us to go around and consider the, 
the idea of not killing the world moment by moment, thing by thing, space by space, you know, instance by instance. If we don't criticize or judge, then we are, are we're narrowing where we are, which is in the present, in the moment, and expanding the possibility of where that thing, those things are, which is they can be many, many things other places. It can be interactive, it can be more expansive. But who we are is becoming more and more nothing, and the things are becoming more and more alive. So that in our relationship to them is more, is less fixed, um, it's not stable, it's, uh, it's a more, com- more complete and full, but more interactive on multiple levels and more alive. And I think we all know of this. I think, I think we know of this in our experience, but maybe haven't considered doing the experiment of not naming, you know, not killing it. So it's even beyond, like, there's the experiment of saying people are not their box. Mm-hmm. Okay, but this is a different experiment than that because people are not their box is just a word game around limiting people. I'm going to see you something other than your box. So I'm acknowledging the presence of the box. Mm-hmm. What you're suggesting is not labeling it all. Yeah. Not giving it a box, not giving it a definition. <clears throat> Anything. So distinctions lead to clarity, and at some point that changes, and distinctions lead to narrowness. Yeah, I was going to say, it becomes your, it becomes a, it, it satisfies your box, but then it becomes the box that you're in, because when you were talking, I just, from my own experience, I think of the kids that I work with, and how most of, you know, birth to five, like their parents just want a diagnosis, they want a name for what they think is wrong for their child, so they get that diagnosis, whether it's autism or cerebral palsy, whatever then there's this period of time where they realize that that owns them. Like they, they've cert- they would give anything to have that name of what's wrong so they know what to do and they can define, d- define it. And then they spend the rest of their life trying to get out of what they wanted so badly, which was that name. So what I kept thinking of is when you were talking about that, I mean, and I know you're not necessarily talking about people, you're kind of applying it to things, but but I just I see people become prisoners of what they, of what they wanted. They're a prisoner of that word now. You know that their child is that word, and they don't want their child to be that word. They want something more, but everybody else knows their child is that word, is autistic or whatever, and so they're caught in this own their own a prison that they've sort of made for themselves and for and for them. And it's a real, I see that as a real struggle for them to let go of it. And maybe that's what you're talking about, making people into their box. But it's like, these words are so powerful. Mm-hmm. And we don't realize that, in a sense, we're owned by them. Although we claim them at the beginning. Maybe what we do is we want to attach ourselves to them because it makes us feel safe. And then we realize that the attachment costs so much more than what we want to pay. Yeah, and I am, it is all about people. I mean, it's simpler to look at it sometimes and think about objects or things, but it's all really about people because that's where it's most 
that's what, that's what we're creating most of the time. Most of our work is about people day to day, moment to moment. Most of the stories that we are involved in are about people. And you know, like I'm thinking right now, like I've got a guy in my life who I have labeled certain things, and those labels are you said they're things that I want, and then they become things that I don't want, and then I'm trying to get out of those labels from this guy. But the, I think that the labels are things that we want really badly because then everything else in our world fits right. in relationship to that. Yeah. So our criticizing and our judging and our assessing is d purposeful and directed towards formulating who they are into something that works in our world story, in our world story, and that we are dedicated to keeping them and look for evidence to support that that's who they are in order to keep our world story just fine, but whether it makes us into a victim or makes us into a, a hero or makes us into whatever. But your, what you're <coughs> suggesting applies to the pleasantries in our life, too. Even the people that we like to be around, we've done the same thing with them. We've turned them into our, we've defined them. Yeah. And therefore they're limited, so their possibilities are limited, because we've defined them. It's sort of like the, today when we were talking about the Joan Allen character, we said it was refreshing to, talking about the woman in The Contender, if you've seen the movie, that I was telling, she's a, she's a faulted woman. Like she has, has an affair, she breaks her marriage vows, and yet through the course of the movie, what you see is that she's a principled woman. And so you get that she's a principled woman, even though she's fallible, so that principles and fallibility are not connected. And you can see that in a lot of male characters in movies, but you rarely see it in female characters, because females are, are, you know, they're demonized for being fallible, or anyway. So like in that character, all of a sudden what happens is, like my experience of that was that she wasn't the box. Like there were a lot of people around her defining her, but she wasn't the box that everyone kept trying to put her in. And so it didn't work for everyone around her. I, f I feel that we've done that with Ben, you know, giving him a label, Asperger's, and um, now we're trying to deal with that, that label, and uh, in a way have killed who he could be or any possibility that we that we're not even conscious of by how we've been trying to put him into a system that's made up of labels and people who label and um, and now we're trying to deal with that now that we've gotten a label on him. You know the thing is that we only live a hundred years and we don't, it takes years to figure some of this stuff out. Years. And these are years we can't do over again. We're doing them in a, in a minimized way. Our lives are really minimized and narrowed. We're sucked into a, a minimized kind of thing. And then we, could, we live there for a long time. But, you know, when we're, we're dying, we go, whoa, we've been minimized for 50 years or whatever. And it, then what are you going to do? <coughs> so, well, I just I'm experiencing right now this expansion, of this 
conversation wherever it's going. And I, I noticed that my body's wanting to contract and try to make sense of it from a limited perspective so that I can go on to the next thing that I know. Instead of being with it and being with the feeling of contraction in my body. And like Red Hawk was making a distinction for us this past week where he was saying that we, um, the mind wants to actively be, you know, calling something something, making um, something else its business all the time because the mind has to the two functions, one of which is to, um, is to be technically involved in everything. Okay. It's a great technical tool for troubleshooting or whatever. You know, that's the basic thing, one of the things the mind does. And so we can, see, I, I never learned that I could actually use my mind technically for checking in with myself and relaxing my body and uh, working with the points in the body and that kind of a thing, instead of always being outwardly directed in that technical way. And so I see that my mind wants to take it and make something out of everything. Wants to label it, wants to categorize it, and then boom, move on to the next thing. Because that way the contraction can at least release for just a moment. You know, and because there is a, there is a, I'm having a physical experience of an attempt to expand, and um, I don't really know how to do it. I don't know how to allow expansion to happen. So it's like I, you know, my whole body's wanting to take it and know what it is, and, and then get on to the next thing. You know, how do I, how do I allow expansion to occur on all levels with myself, so that it, so that I can understand it better and be with it better. I, I sense that your consideration is valuable, and yet I'm in my head still. I don't know what to do with it. So it's like it's not alive for me. It's a head conversation. Well, it, I, it feels very real to me. And the first thing that came to my mind as you started talking was James's dirty socks. And the story that I have about James's dirty socks and how they appear all over the house but never in the hamper. And how I have a huge emotion attached to that and a judgment. And it just charges. And then the man walks in the door coming home and I don't see James. It's the man whose dirty socks are all over the house. And that's very real for me because I'm still creating victim everywhere I look. And so the practicality of what you're saying to me is, and I'm feeling uh, frightened because I wouldn't be talking as much as I talk if I were not naming things. There would be more quietness. There would be more space. There would be more formality. Um, it would be a completely different space. And it would require vigilance than the kind that Red Hawk is really training us in. And so I'm excited and I'm scared because what's coming up is I see after so many events in the intensive how huge I'm still playing victim and running my stories. And all you know, as simple as dirty socks. And that's just one inanimate object. So the conversation is feels very real to me and full of possibility. How would your life be more formal? Well, if I'm not ranting and raving about dirty socks, then James walks in the door and it might start with, hi, <laughs> how are you? How was your day? And I'd give him a big hug. And um, 
and the socks were handled. The sock, I just, you know, they went in the hamper, I put them there. They're handled. And there's a way that I'm recognizing more and more that I am not holding a space for cleanliness, that I am truly contributing to the, to the, the wreck and the debris and the chaos in the house. And James made the comment that, you know, I don't even feel like putting my socks in the hamper because there's so much already all littered across the house, and that's true. So, so that game, is that, that's a game. And if I'm not charged about the socks, then, then I release that game. And there's possibility for something else to appear. It could be we go for a walk, you know. It's, you know, can you imagine if, can I imagine if I'm not moaning and bitching about something? What's possible is pleasure and joy and maybe a moment of, of real honest anger and rather than resentment. I mean, there's all kinds of possibility. And, and it's in every moment, and that's really full. That requires great attention, <laughs> a lot of attention. And I'm, I find that I don't <laughs> want to be attentive. I, I really want to be comfortable. And attention is not necessarily comfortable. That's what I was thinking about, too, as far as really in regard to them, that, um, excuse me, I think what's happened for me, especially in the past four to six weeks or so, um, has perhaps in some way been looking, uh, I've been looking for a way to unlabel them, but but really what it feels like is that I'm acknowledging how much I don't know about him and don't know who he is. And I, like I just keep feeling like I'm stepping off into the unknown. While I know, I mean, I'm, I'm creating the story that that's freeing for me and for him in stepping in the unknown. What it causes in me viscerally is terror and um, and a lot of grief. Um, and it's grief about, um, I, don't, I don't know that I have a lot of clarity about the grief, but that's what it, but it brings it up. And so I am sitting with that pain and yet there is an aliveness in that pain that's not available to me when I play the other games and run the other stories. Um, so, I mean, that's just, especially in the past month, that's where I felt like I've been with him, starting to acknowledge what I don't know, or, or just admit to myself, I know nothing about this and about him. So I want to suggest that there's a protocol of warriorship for interacting with the world at the level where the world is alive at the level that we're talking about. Right now our methodology is kill the world and then live in the box. And that what I'm suggesting is that by taking on a, a, an impeccability with regards to the protocol of relating in an alive world, that then it makes then then the fear isn't uh, it isn't panic it isn't uh, a debilitating fear it's just fear 
so which is natural you know, it's a natural necessary thing so partly the etiquette and protocol for interacting with an alive world as what we're just using the word warrior because there's there's a um, that's been used before I guess there is a certain attention to what works and what doesn't work and so if for example you're with your son and you're not using labels for him or anything else there then you then you can actually be more where he is in the world so you're actually more with him because that's a kind of a childlike relationship to the world of just not knowing things and make believe or make you know just like presence and an interaction and relationship with stuff then but there's still a protocol and an etiquette that allows you to be responsible allows us to be responsible in that place whereas I've seen adults um, try to be with their children for example in a way that they're in the child's world but then the child has no adult around and the child loses their anchor into an adult reality so they don't have a relationship to that and the kid goes nuts and the parents go nuts and there's a there's an instability that does not allow maturing to happen for either the child or the adult it's chaotic and doesn't mature it doesn't progress the evolution can't occur because there's no there isn't a force uh, a directed energy which is um, created by a difference, potential difference between the child and the adult, or something like that. But, but for the for the parent to be able to be in an alive relationship with the child, there needs to be a a, um, a, a, a connection, a connectedness to responsibility, 100% responsibility, and a, a minimizing of the of this of story making, of bringing in labels and stories. Because that spread that those judgments and labeling and criticism spread something out into the past and the future, whereas what we're talking about is a as a being a present. But in that presence, there is a an ability to say this works and this doesn't work, and that has to do with responsibility. Whereas a child doesn't have the ability to discern what's on and what's off, what's impeccable, what's not impeccable, what's sloppy and what's precise, what um, what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. Like a child doesn't have those distinctions. An adult can, in the present, without labeling, without stories, can still have those distinctions in the present. And, um, and then you're in a relationship with the child as being another being, with, with whatever capacities they bring into the present. They don't have to bring the same ones they had before they bring whatever ones they have now so they're not ex- there aren't any expectations and there aren't any assumptions about it but there is a demand for um, a relationship so so that's that's a high level of whatever you want to call it warriorship or paying attention or but I think it's really natural also I think it's a really joyous kind of thing. I don't think it's hard. I, I think it's different from what our practice is normally. But I think that there's an aliveness that we miss out on 
and an at-riskness of um, by having certain things labeled and planned and specified and killed that um, and formulated. So if you're going into a relationship, say with a child again, you can't go in formulated. You know, if, if you're doing that, it's dead. So then, you, you know, you're you guys are sort of engaging the possible. You're talking about homeschooling, and you're talking about Ben. Ben is a really alive guy, and um, your training and background has come from your own parents and their, their psychologies, and some a little bit from friends, but it's still where we carry the biggest baggage I think that we carry is always from, you know, our own upbringing, because that's the most the deeply imprinted stuff. And, you know, all this past life shit and all this other, like, you know, stuff. You know, we, that's, where our, that's, that's where we're bringing, that's what we're bringing in. So there's a level of, of being responsible in the present for all of that stuff and yet not having that dominate what's happening when having it not overpower what we know is appropriate and what works and what isn't appropriate and what doesn't work. You know, you make an agreement, you keep the agreement. You you have a communication and you um, it's a real thing. You make a promise, you keep the promise. You make a declaration, you say this is how it is, then that's how it is. And you, you don't, like, back off of that for no reason. I mean, it's like a, you're creating, like there's nothing there, so out of the nothing there can still be um, an appropriate behavior and appropriate relationships without it being a formula, without it being a, a labeled and predictable thing. And you walk in your office, Fred, and you walk in your office at work, and you go chair, pictures, bookcase, computer, desk, printer, book, light, switch, lamp, Okay, sit down, chair, work, computer on, you know, and all of this stuff is, sets up, it's like you walk into your control room and you just turn on all these realities. Each one of those is a label and it's a reality. And it, and from one viewpoint, it's really practical and effective. You know, it's handled. You walk in, I know what the room is, I can work. And, and what the kind of the thing that we're suggesting as an alternative to that is you walk in, you just go, you know, this place is humming, the walls are vibrating, you know, you know, there's singing going on, there's flowing light, there's energy, there's history, there's all these energy, you get all these pictures in your room, you know, and every one of those pictures is a world. And you look into one of those pictures and you get sucked into, there's this person, there's this person, there's a relationship that closed, the time, you know, the, with the thing that was happening, you get sucked into a story. So you have all these worlds all around you in there. And every book, you open a book, it's a whole new world in there. You've got all these worlds crammed together, and they're like they're like stuck together. Your room is your your office is like really packed with world upon world upon world, and it's this bound up energy in there, you know. And it, then you walk in there and and label everything in your mind, so that's how it is. You know, this is that, this is that. Kills all that those compacted worlds into just being like things, and then you're trying to work in there, and the work that you create, you know, what you're creating is, I think that you have to, you particularly are paying a high price, part of the price you're paying is that you've got to go in there and defend yourself against all those camp compacted energy affecting you. So you walk in, defend it. You kind of walk in your office and defend yourself and make another little world around you that where you can 
work on the phone, work on whatever you're writing, work on the computer, and without without all that stuff. And you know, if you allowed that much those worlds to be alive with you and all you know interact with you in there without knowing what they were, you know, without boxing them up and compacting them in there, I don't know. I don't know what that would be. You might say, this is like too much. This doesn't work for me anymore. You might clear out your office. You know, it just might be that way. So that emptiness is formed. You know, so, so that in the emptiness that was a Zen office room, you could, there could be some form that would come out of that. I mean, it's clear that form is emptiness. That's an obvious, it's really more obvious for me. You know, you practice, you practice. You know, you sit at this time from then to then. That's form. And out of that form, you don't have to think about it anymore. There's an emptiness that comes. But the reverse one, which is emptiness is form, that's been, like, trickier for me to get a hold on. But I think it has something to do with in the not knowing, then, then arises the what is so. And, and that only arises out of the not knowing. Because if you go in, you, you, you have to have the emptiness out of from which the form can come. <coughs> and that might be part of the price that's paid. I can really relate to this. The whole, like, I, I'm at that point where I really needed this expansion piece of this because when I go into my when I go into work in the mornings my cubicle and everything around me has gotten smaller I, I can feel it on every level it's all closed in and I don't know what that's about exactly but I know that I feel almost paralyzed as soon as I sit down in my chair because I go in there with a, an agenda I go in there realizing you know this is what I have to do today and this is what I know I need to get done and so I immediately start putting things into the categories, and what I'm getting is more and more of an increased sense that I can't do it, you know, that I can't do the very thing that I know I'm supposed to do in my own mind, and so I haven't known how to get out of that, I don't know, because, you know, I quite structure and planning and everything with accomplishment. And yet there's something else being called of me, you know, and or called of, I'm being called to, to relate to that environment differently somehow. And I don't know how to do it. I've been very scared about that. Um, because the old way of doing things isn't working for me because I can sit there and know what I have to do, but I can't make it happen. And, um, and so the stress has been building and I don't really know the way out. It's very scary. And I know that, that that little world that I live in when I'm at work has gotten smaller and smaller. And I don't know how to make it different at this point, but I do know that there's something bigger or something more expansive that is being required of me, and I don't know how to get there. So that's all I know right now. In your work, aren't you doing enrollment? I'm not doing enrollment. What's your work? My work is to work with my, I take care of computers and a network in three cities right now. Don't, don't you talk to people on the phone? Yeah, I talk with people on the phone, yeah. 
Don't you do troubleshooting over the phone? Yes. Uh-huh. That's enrollment. You're like, somebody has a problem on the phone, on their computer, and you're talking to you help me with... Yes, I do that all the time. That's mostly your job, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you're, you're, you're opening the possibility for the other person to have a working computer. That's right. That's over the right. phone. Yeah. Well, that's enrollment. Yeah, that's... Well, that is always an active, nonlinear creation. That's true, it is. It's, yeah, that's right. And when I'm in relationship with someone, one-on-one or on the phone, that's happening. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's open. You know, it's just the logistics of the details of the paperwork and all the other stuff that I find very limiting and closing in. So, that's right, that's true. I'm engaged in conversation with someone. other thing you were talking about sounds really interesting if you're in the processing stuff. You know what I mean? I think so. Just the the panic of being closed in. And you could probably go there anytime you want. Is that true? Yeah. Let the panic get bigger and bigger? Right. that must be pretty fun. I mean, it must fit in your box somehow. It must be really supportive of your box somehow. The panic part of it. Actually, it's it's really more about trying to do everything at once, have everything be there in the same space. It's impossible to have that, and that creates panic when I do that. I mean, I, I can really relate to that. I mean, I just have a we all do this. We all do this thing of, of interpreting our experience in a certain story that supports a, a common experience for us. So the panic must be a common experience for you. You know, for me, it's like overwhelm and whatever. So the, the reason I'm saying that I'm having a conversation about the conversation was because I wasn't necessarily inviting us to go there now, though that's something that you can work on at some other point. But because um, what, re- what I wanted to do is actually go back to the other part of the conversation that I had that we haven't been talking about so far, which is the consideration that creation is dead and that mostly when we interact with the, with the world, we just assume we're alive and the world's alive and we just go along doing our mechanical lives with the world and life. And, but the consideration is that the creation is dead and that we're involved being just as dead as the creation is until such time as we're called to or shocked into paying attention to our attention or shocked into observing ourselves or shocked into uh, calling let's see just calling into the space a higher level of awareness or tension so that um, 
so that God can know itself. It's like, you know, everything is created, so everything is God, if we use that word, God, then, but God doesn't know until, God doesn't know itself until it becomes aware, until it becomes aware of itself. So, human beings have a capacity, a designed in capacity, that a potential to become aware of the nature of our essential godliness. But until we're involved in that, then creation is dead. But the, the moment, in the moment that we become aware, we become God knowing itself, or pay, God paying attention to itself, in that moment then creation is alive. And like the divine or God is terribly pained by and suffering because of the fact that creation is dead. And our work is to help alleviate the suffering of God by helping, by whenever and wherever we can to be involved in bringing creation to life through through being like the, the whatever the me- mechanism or the transformer or the thing that allows God to be aware of itself in that moment and then we're in that moment we're helping to alleviate the suffering of God by bringing creation to life have to do, I keep thinking about how, um, and this is really big for me right now, just, um, and I'm just going to say what I'm thinking, I don't know what it is yet, just, I've been playing with this idea since Red Hawk's been talking to us, is about um, feeling and being responsible for our own pain, and, I, and when you said that about God, it's like, it, it seemed to me like it's, like by by acknowledging and feeling and taking responsibility for our own suffering, um, we acknowledge there's like something connected to there's there's something that connects us to God and that that we're taking that that's part of what we're doing in our world. That's the consciousness part. Um, you know if. If the first tenet of Buddhism is life is suffering, then my whole life is about, I mean, I have two choices. Up until the moment I realize that, my life is about not feeling that suffering. Consciousness is, a, it, for me, I'm becoming aware that to be conscious is to suffer. And I don't mean like a martyr. I mean, like I was saying that this morning, it's a different level. There's like a different level of that, not just to suffer so that I look good or because it's the right thing to do or whatever, but literally like that is, that's the path. And I don't know, I mean, this may not have anything to do with what you're talking about, but it just, I keep, it keeps coming up to me when you, as you're talking that, um, that that's, there's like a key there for us. Um, like if I can tune into my own suffering and the pain that I'm, the horror of the situation, the pain I'm feeling, whatever you want to call it, in any given moment, then, then, then the, 
then everything's different for me. Then you're not just who I think you are. I mean, like, that's not what I think it is. It's like, I'm totally, I'm not even what I think I am. Because I'm, because I'm aware of like what's really, what's really there for me in that moment. And then, and then I can do something different around my energy. And I feel like they're talking a lot about energy too. It's just like they're like, there's lots of different energies and we're not even aware of how they affect us. Even just in the artifacts around us or, you know, the people around us or whatever. But it's like, um, I don't know, becoming aware there's a, like a core suffering inside of me that I'm only aware of at certain moments. But I think that, I think it's what you're talking about, like it's the godliness in us, it's, you know, it's, if there's a suffering there, like, I don't know, that's all I can language about it right now. Go ahead. I was thinking about what you were saying and like how, like how I like how in a way like I like things dead because then they're they're predictable and like how hard I work sometimes to to create it that way and to keep it that way and um yeah and and then I and then I'm really bored with it and like what Mary was saying it's like I don't even, like, I never get to, I don't get to to that level with it. It's like, it's just, it's just so automatic in a way just to keep it, to keep it. Yeah. I think about it as being just sort of even and predictable and whatever, but I, like I didn't think about it until you said that about it being dead. I've been thinking about my uh, my relationship to myself and how I felt like I was in a box before I started doing the event and felt trapped and and pressured and how you know the work that I've done in the past several years um, how I have uh, felt more alive getting to know my feelings getting to know the details as um, Red Hawk was saying that God was in the details, and I really have felt that God is exists and is alive in so many things. And then I, I was thinking that um, that by not having the judgments and the uh, the gossip that we're the practice we're working on, and not having negative emotions, that that we can be present and not have all that, well, we have to have labels to make those things so, that by not having those, that we are at one with God, and that allows other objects, things, 
to be something else, to be something bigger than what we make them, or not even bigger, but just different, because um, that's a judgment too. Uh, but just to be different, and I, and I thought about myself that by being in that state, that something's possible that I haven't even conjured up yet, or even. Um, so I'm not looking at the past to create. I'm looking. I mean, I'm just creating in the now instead of pulling from the past, which has judgments on it, and has labels, and, or you know, my fantasy that has labels. This thing that you said, Mary, about <clears throat> I'm not who I think I am. If you do that experiment. I was doing that experiment when you were saying that. It's really an interesting experiment. Because we wake up in the morning and the first thing we assume is, I know who I am. And we go through the whole day thinking, I know who I am. And then I know who you are. You know. But if we can start with, go, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. I don't. Then all of a sudden, then, then all of a sudden we're out, the, out of the box or out of that box anyway. My attention has been on knowing who I am. So I don't even, I don't wake up knowing who I am. I spend my day defining who I am. You're that, you're that, you're that, you're that, I'm this, you're that. So like it's it's not done for me. Like I, like the thing you said about my office is really like, That's not Dee Dee. <laughs> the thing about you said about my office is really like I've just been feeling overwhelmed. Like how do I get how do I get through it? Which is the thing I do, I get overwhelmed. So when you started talking about how much stuff's in there, that's I've been feeling that, but I haven't because I know what all that stuff is, I haven't looked at it. So the minute you said it, it was like Oh my God! I could actually move that stuff, and I forgot I put it there. Okay, but I. I was wondering. I was wondering where she was. She's one of. I mean, don't you feel what it's like when she's not here? I mean, you know. She felt it. That's not a meeting. I'm not there. So that that's. That's part of, like that labeling is part of my machine. It's part of what I do. So, so like, how do you function at that level of not knowing? I mean, now that is a question you could live with for a while. <laughs> Let's assume that's your homework assignment. It feels pretty cavalier. What like, does that mean? That, I mean, that's, you know, it's a fun thing to throw out there. But the reality of it is, how would, I mean, functioning in that level of not knowing, not knowing any object was any object and still getting something done? 
Yeah. Okay. I, okay, I don't know what that looks like. Well, I, let me paint a little picture, okay? Like, like you have a commitment to cook dinner and dinner's at 6.30 and you, uh, so you need to come up and figure out what you're going to cook. And so, so then you write down the menu and you buy all the food and you bring it together and you walk in the kitchen, you've got this bags of food or whatever you put on the counter and you go, you know, I, I need to cook dinner and I don't know what anything is. So what do I need to do? So I need to mix up some sauce. Okay, well, I need something to put the sauce in. So you look around the garbage can. You could put it in the garbage can. You could put it in your hat. You could put it in your shoe. You could put the sauce in, like, all these things, the base, whatever. So, but you end up picking out one, a round thing like this to mix this. I was wanting to bring up a consideration that's been bugging me for a couple of weeks. So is that okay? Yes. I don't have an answer about it, so maybe we'll come up with some answers. But I was thinking about how the world is a lot more alive than we normally regard it, I think. I think that there's a lot more subtle and lively and energetic um, things happening around all the time that we largely block ourselves from experiencing. And if you've read any Carlos Castaneda stuff that Don Juan Matus is always indicating those things as a way of trying to help wake up Carlos Castaneda some more, to pay attention in different ways. But in our own um, language or our own um, work with that st stuff, it's still, that is still something I think that's necessary for us to move into is a, a more complete and interactive relationship with life that's that where in such in some way where we become more involved or more lively in relationship to life without cutting it or att without attenuating 
the experience of the volatility and liveliness that's around us. And I think that the, one of the ways that we deaden the, our experience of life has to do with our naming of things and our objectifying things, making things into objects, distinct objects that we name. And it, not just that, but when we, when we name an object or when we pick out an object that's distinct, we, we assume it's fixed and rigid and solid in that naming process. So if, if we pick up the bottle, we go, oh yeah, it's a, it's a bottle, it's a plastic bottle because we know what it is, we already know what it is. And that's not, what that's doing is blocking off 99% of what's happening there in that thing that we just call uh, a bottle. And it's not allowing the bottle to be alive. It's not allowing it to be changing. So that's the thing, is that we're not allowing the things to be changing. We're, we're um, crystallizing them in our experience into a, a thing or an object that's dead and lifeless and still so that uh, and so that it establishes a relationship between us and it so that so that our what I say you know, box so that our box doesn't have to do anything different so it's a defense mechanism to keep the box the same we go around killing the entire domain of life around us from everything from what we think of as inanimate objects to, through uh, like this carpet which is maybe wool so it's half you know half animate whatever to something that's fully animated you know birds trees people animals all those things that's we objectify all that and take the life out of it through a, a really pervasive unquestioned activity, an act of creation that we're doing. We're actively creating the world as dead so that the liveliness doesn't affect us so that our box can stay the same. So that's one sort of viewpoint is, the, is that methodology of ego or the box that stultifies and crystallizes and mortifies the world to make it dead. So the other, the other side of it is some languaging that comes out of, I guess, a Gurdjieffian background. And I don't know if Red Hawk has spoken with you about this already, but the other, the other way of the other part of the consideration is that the manifested world, which is everything with atoms in it, you know, everything that's physical and exists, that the manifested world can be called creation. The whole thing is creation. All the planets, all the stars, everything on all the planets and in between, all the galaxies and all the molecules and all the light and energy and fields and all of that stuff. <clears throat> is creation, so that it's a created world. So the whole thing has been manifested. So there's 
this, there's a world that's unmanifested, and this is this which we don't experience, and this is the manifested world which we live in and relate to the physical world. And the idea, that consideration from there, is that is that creation is dead, and that our work is to bring creation to life and that the, the way that happens is through placing our attention on aspects of creation as a way of bringing them to life and so I've been trying to figure this out or think about it and what I was thinking was that, um, you know, if there, if creation is dead, the the way that it's dead is that it doesn't know it's alive or something like that. that our human consciousness has the possibility of being aware of ourselves as being created, or being aware of God, or being aware of our attention, or being aware of ourselves so self-awareness so there's a there is a way that if if we take it for granted that creation is dead and that part of our work is to make a you know make a chamber and call forth a level of attention that transforms the energy of the space into something that's more refined to feed something higher which is, I think Red Hawk was talking with you guys about before, then that's a way of making the creation come to life <coughs> because of the aliveness of, it, of creation paying attention to itself. And whereas, whereas this bottle again, poor bottle, this bottle again is dead because, because it hasn't been regarded or it isn't, it isn't paid attention to in a certain way. So if I establish a different kind of relationship to this bottle where it's a, where I've appreciated, where I act, I'm actively involved in appreciating or paying attention to or caring for or loving or nurturing the bottle, I, I have infinite respect for the bottle, um, then there's a way that it comes back to life again that it's involved in a consciousness, um, a consciousness activity. It's involved, it's in a relationship with consciousness, so that because it's involved with that, it comes to life differently. Well, there's a, so then I'm going back to the box again. In the, the, the context of boxes, one of the contexts is a defended box. So a defended box is one that's protected and not allowed to expand or be in relationship with something that it can't control or dominate or manipulate or keep the same. So that's a defended box. And an expanded box is involved in incorporating more and more uh, awareness, including more, allowing more to come in. So it, it, it gets bigger and what, what's getting bigger is consciousness. The consciousness of the box is getting bigger, or the awareness, it includes more. So, 
that's actually a learning process. So there's a box that's defended and a box that's learning. And we're, in, we're involved in, the process that we're involved in is a learning process, where boxes are expanding because we're, we're involved in a learning process. I guess that's about as far as I got. So I wanted to just sort of throw a bit out and see what other people are thinking about all that stuff. Well, to me, I can relate very readily to the training that we've had in the event uh, by training our attentions, training ourselves to be a, a listening space for people. It's be, it, I understand and I experienced it earlier in a conversation with my daughter how if I would just be present and listen, her conversation became increasingly more enlivened and increasingly more trusting and increasingly more informative to herself and to myself, just in, in my having been there on the phone, giving her my attention. And she asked me, please, Mother, I'd like you to withhold any comments or any, you know, any whatever. And I said, no problem. And, you know, we had an agreement that I was going to be listening for her, and we both understood the agreement, so we had an aim in that, and it really was productive. She got to fully express, and it was a very enlivened experience between both of us. You know, and, and to me, that's bringing conversation alive, the training that we've had, and really just listening is an enlivening experience. First thing that I thought of was the Matrix, with the spoon scene, and he, nothing happened to the spoon at first because he saw the laws and principles of the spoon that it was solid, and, and he was trying to bend the spoon, and the kid said, uh, "Think of it as not a spoon." Or again, don't try to bend the spoon, for that is impossible. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's not a spoon. Basically. There is no spoon. Right, there is no spoon. And so he just totally changed the laws, and it bent. And that's what I was thinking of when you were speaking. That other things are possible by not, by not holding just to the box of the rules. The naming and the, the naming and labeling. And that's what did land for me. It's like I'm sitting here. It's reverb. It's in my mind. Like what the cost is of that box of limiting creation. So when you said it, it was a new idea. So I got caught in the idea of it. So now I'm kind of looking at, well, what's the cost of that? Like, where, how is creation limited? And how does that function daily? So I think it'd be worth looking at that for this conversation. Like, what are the costs for limiting creation? So can you start that conversation? Well, when you already know what something is, then every other thing that it could be that can't exist anymore. So it's killing all, it's killing possibilities for relationship because we already know how a person is or how a sentence is that they said or an attitude that they have or an act that they do or like that. If we name it and go, oh, that again, or they're being this way or they're being that way, or we have a, we assess it and we have a story about it, or we criticize it, or we judge it, then we're not allowing it to be 
Well, then we've limited it. We've killed off all the other things that it is. And if instead we go in and don't know what it is, we still can be in relationship with it. We still can be aware of it. We still can work with it. We can, we can, things can happen, but we're, we're not naming what it is. So the things that can happen are more completed. There's more possibility. So when we go in and naming something, calling it by name and define, uh, de- um, delimiting the future of it to, for it to be consistent with its past, something like that, then we've killed it. We've, we've narrowed it down into a one, that's it, that's what it is. And then we don't have to do anything else with it. So there will, our relationship to it has then been killed or, or deadened. It's been, we've, we've eliminated the flux that's actually happening, the liveliness and, the, and the, the change that's actually happening right there. There's nothing that's not changing. There's nothing that's not changing. And by the action of naming a thing, we're killing the changeness quality. We're, we're eliminating that from our relationship with the thing. And, and that what I'm suggesting is that from that viewpoint, everything is so lively and so radiant and vibracious and interactive and um, evolutionary, it's evolving, that um, we, we, we disestablish that from our experience and our relationship with th- that thing by, by doing the naming thing on it. So that's the cost of it. So for most of us, I mean, what we think is go, well, that's great, you know? I don't have to worry about the lamp becoming anything other than a lamp because I've named it. It makes my world easier. It gives me power, gives me uh, safety, gives me uh, stability, and like that. And uh, so, for psychology, you know, for the box, it's a fantastic deal. Like all I have to do is name something, and I own it. You know, then I've got it. So for us to go around and consider the the idea of not killing the world moment by moment, thing by thing, space by space, you know, instance by instance. If we don't criticize or judge, then we are, are, we're narrowing where we are, which is in the present, in the moment, and expanding the possibility of where that thing, those things are, which is they can be many, many things other places. It can be interactive, it can be more expansive. But who we are is becoming more and more nothing, and the things are becoming more and more alive. So that in our relationship to them is more is less fixed. Um, it's not stable. It's uh, it's a more comp- more complete and full, but more interactive on multiple levels and more alive. And I think we all know of this. I think I think we know of this in our experience but maybe haven't considered doing the experiment of not naming, you know, not killing it. So it's even beyond, like, there's the experiment of saying people are not their box. Mm-hmm. Okay, but this is a different experiment than that because people are not their box is just a word game around limiting people. I'm going to see you something other than your box. So I'm acknowledging the presence of the box. What you're suggesting is not labeling at all. Yeah. Not giving it a box, not giving it a definition. Anything. 
so distinctions lead to clarity, and at some point that changes, and distinctions lead to narrowness. Yeah, I was gonna say it becomes your it becomes a it it satisfies your box, but then it becomes the box that you're in because when you were talking, I just from my own experience, I think of the kids that I work with and how most of you know birth to five, like their parents just want a diagnosis, they want a name for what they think is wrong for their child, so they get that diagnosis, whether it's autism or cerebral palsy, whatever, then there's this period of time where they realize that that owns them. Like they, they've they would give anything to have that name of what's wrong so they know what to do and they can define, d define it. And then they spend the rest of their life trying to get out of what they wanted so badly, which was that name. So what I kept thinking of is when you were talking about that, I mean, and I know you're not necessarily talking about people, you're kind of applying it to things, but but I just, I see people become prisoners of what, they, of what they wanted. They're a prisoner of that word now, you know, that their child is that word, and they don't want their child to be that word. They want something more, but everybody else knows their child is that word, is autistic or whatever. And so they're caught in this own, they're a prison that they've sort of made for themselves and for, and for them. And it's a real, I see that as a real struggle for them to let go of it. And maybe that's what you're talking about, making people into their box. But it's like, these words are so powerful. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize that, in a sense, we're owned by them. Although we claim them at the beginning. Maybe what we do is we want to attach ourselves to them because it makes us feel safe. And then we realize that the attachment costs so much more than what we want to pay. Yeah, and I am, it is all about people. I mean, it's simpler to look at it sometimes and think about objects or things, but it's all really about people because that's where it's most, that's, that's where we're creating most of the time. Most of our work is about people day to day, moment to moment. Most of the stories that we're involved in are about people. And, you know, like I'm thinking right now, like I've got a guy in my life who I have labeled certain things, and those labels are, you said, there are things that I want, and then they become things that I don't want. And then I'm trying to get out of those labels from this guy. But the, I think that the labels are things that we want really badly because then everything else in our world fits right. in relationship to that. Yeah. So our criticizing and our judging and our assessing is d purposeful and directed towards formulating who they are into something that works in our world story, in our world story, and that we are dedicated to keeping them and look for evidence to support that that's who they are in order to keep our world story just fine, but whether it makes us into a victim or makes us into a hero or makes us into whatever. But your, what you're <coughs> suggesting applies to the pleasantries in our life, too. Even the people that we like to be around, we've done the same thing with them. We've turned them into our, we've defined them. Yeah. And therefore they're limited, so their possibilities are limited, because we've defined them. It's sort of like the, today when we were talking about the Joan Allen character, we said it was refreshing to, talking about the woman in The Contender, if you've seen the movie, that I was telling, she's a, she's a faulted woman. Like she has, has an affair, she breaks her marriage vows, 
and yet through the course of the movie what you see is that she's a principled woman and so you get that she's a principled woman even though she's fallible so that principles and fallibility are not connected and you can see that in a lot of male characters in movies but you rarely see it in female characters because females are, are you know they're demonized for being fallible or anyway so like in that character all of a sudden what happens is like my experience of that was that she wasn't the box like there were a lot of people around her defining her but she wasn't the box that everyone kept trying to put her in and so it didn't work for everyone around her I, f I feel that we've done that with Ben you know given him a label Asperger's and him um, now we're trying to deal with that that label and um, in a way have killed who he could be or any possibility that we that we're not even conscious of by how we've been trying to put him into a system that's made up of labels and people who label and um, and now we're trying to deal with that now that we've gotten a label on him You know, the thing is that we only live 100 years, and we don't, it takes years to figure some of this stuff out, years. And these are years we can't do over again. We're doing them in a, in a minimized way. Our lives are really minimized and narrowed. We're sucked into a, a minimized kind of thing. And then we, we live there for a long time, but, you know, we're, we're dying, go, whoa, we've been minimized for 50 years or whatever. And it, then what are you going to do? You know? <clears throat> so. Well, I just, I'm experiencing right now this expansion of this conversation and where it's going. And I, I noticed that my body's wanting to contract and try to make sense of it from a limited perspective so that I can go on to the next thing that I know, instead of being with it and being with the feeling of contraction in my body. And like Red Hawk was making a distinction for us this past week where he was saying that we, um, the mind wants to actively be, you know, calling something something, making um, something else its business all the time because the mind has two, the two functions, one of which is to um, is to be technically involved in everything. Okay. It's a great technical tool for troubleshooting or whatever. You know, that's the basic thing, one of the things the mind does. And so we can, see, I, I never learned that I could actually use my mind technically for checking in with myself and relaxing my body and uh, working with instead of always being outwardly directed in that technical way. And so I see that my mind wants to take it and make something out of everything. Wants to label it, wants to categorize it, and then boom, move on to the next thing. Because that way the contraction can at least release for just a moment. You know, and because there is a, there is a, I'm having a physical experience of an attempt to expand, and um, I don't really know how I don't know how to allow expansion to happen in my body. 
so it's like I, you know, my whole body's wanting to take it and know what it is and, and then get on to the next thing. You know, how do I, how do I allow expansion to occur on all levels with myself so that it, so that I can understand it better and be with it better? I sense that your consideration is valuable, and yet I'm in my head still. I don't know what to do with it. So it's like it's not alive for me. It's a head conversation. Well, it, I, it feels very real to me, and the first thing that came to my mind as you started talking was James's dirty socks. And the story that I have about James's dirty socks and how they appear all over the house but never in the hamper. And how I have a huge emotion attached to that and a judgment, and it just charges and then the man walks in the door coming home and I don't see James it's the man whose dirty socks are all over the house and that's a very real for me because I'm still creating victim everywhere I look and so the practicality of what you're saying to me is and I'm feeling I'm frightened because I wouldn't be talking as much as I talk if I were not naming things there would be more quietness there would be more space there would be more formality um, it would be a completely different space, and it would require vigilance than the kind that Red Hawk is really training us in. And so I'm excited, and I'm scared because what's coming up is I see after so many events in the intensive how huge I'm still playing victim and running my stories, and all you know, as simple as dirty socks, and that's just one inanimate object. So the conversation is feels very real to me and full of possibility. How would your life be more formal? Well, if I'm not ranting and raving about dirty socks, then James walks in the door and it might start with, Hi. <laughs> How are you? How was your day? And I'd give him a big hug. And, um, and the socks were handled. The sock, I just, you know, they went in the hamper. I put them there. They're handled. And there's a way that I'm recognizing more and more that I am not holding a space for cleanliness, that I am truly contributing to the to the the wreck and the debris and the chaos in the house. And James made the comment that, you know, I don't even feel like putting my socks in the hamper because there's so much already all littered across the house, and that's true. So, so that game is that that's a game, and if I'm not charged about the socks, then, then I release that game. And there's possibility for something else to appear. It could be we go for a walk, you know. It's, you know, uh, can you imagine if, can I imagine if I'm not moaning and bitching about something? What's possible is pleasure and joy and maybe a moment of, of real honest anger and rather than resentment. I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities. And it's in every moment, and that's really full. That requires great attention, <laughs> a lot of attention. And I'm, I find that I don't want to be attentive. I, I really want to be comfortable. And attention is not necessarily comfortable. Well, that's what I was thinking about, too, as far as really in regard to men that um, Excuse me, I think what's happened for me, especially in the past four to six weeks or so, um, 
has perhaps in some way been looking, uh, I've been looking for a way to unlabel Ben, but, but really what it feels like is that I'm acknowledging how much I don't know about him and don't know who he is and uh, like I just keep feeling like I'm stepping off into the unknown.